My district was in Western Pennsylvania. The neighboring congressman was Republican. I was a Democrat. We were both centrist-oriented and uh, had constituencies that were politically mixed, approximately half Republican and half Democrat. And we had a conversation with each other that we should do joint town hall meetings. You're listening to The Purple Principle, and today's featured guest, Jason Altmaier, former three-term U.S. congressman from Pennsylvania. This was at the time that the Tea Party was just starting up, and some of the town hall meetings around the country had been very rough and very partisan, and we were lamenting the fact that you couldn't have a civil conversation about politics in this country. So we decided we would bring our constituents together, and we would do joint town hall meetings. This is Robert Pease, host of The Purple Principle. Please join us for a view of polarization from right up the middle today with Jason Altmaier, rated the most centrist member of the U.S. House during his three-term tenure and author of the book Dead Center, How Political Polarization Divided America. I'm here with staff reporter Emily Cressetti. Emily, had you ever heard of a bipartisan town hall? I had not. I didn't even know what that phrase meant when I first did hear it, but I have done some research and it seems that these town halls are held sometimes, usually over regional issues though, like natural disasters or during COVID. And what about the town halls Jason Altmaier is describing? Some were organized by Altmaier and his Republican colleague next door, Tim Murphy, and not linked to any particular topic. And what about the others? Some others were sponsored events, like the double ARP on Medicare and Social Security. And speaking of that, I think that we should play something from that event. Hmm, hold on a sec. Do we want to admit we're spicing up audio with double ARP meetings? Okay, maybe not spicing up exactly. I would say more like calming things down. I think that our listeners, and especially the young people, really need to hear this. It's a Democrat and a Republican having a completely civil conversation in front of voters. And just listen to this. Welcome to the AARP Town Hall Meeting. Tonight's topic is the future of Social Security and Medicare. We have Congressman Jason Altmaier in the middle and Congressman Tim Murphy at my far left. This format relies on questions, so we hope you brought a lot of questions with you. I'm a very proud member of AARP Pennsylvania. Do you think that the formula that determines the cost of living really reflects the true cost of living for seniors? I absolutely do not. And I have co-sponsored legislation in each of the last two Congresses to change the formula. Are you, are you on that bill yep, too, yep. I do agree with Pat, the questioner, that we need to change the formula and we need to better account for the needs of seniors. Congressman Murphy? Uh, I, I'm on that bill as well with Jason. and um, We have to be honest about this. Yes, the CPI is not a fair formula when it comes to really look at the cost of living increase for seniors. Then listen to what one audience member said about the tone of this event, about the uh, civility and the bipartisanship. I think that uh, we are lucky in southwestern Pennsylvania to have two congressmen like these. You know, there's politicians, and I'm so afraid that there's no more statesmen. And I think uh, you two are probably on the road to becoming some great statesmen for our country. 
Yeah, that is like an alternate universe, uh, but it's only Western Pennsylvania about 10 years ago. Okay, so then what happened that made us so partisan? A really good question, Emily. In fact, the driving question behind this podcast. So let's see what former Congressman Altmaier has to say about growing partisanship in the first half of our interview. Jason Altmaier, welcome to The Purple Principle. Thank you so much for joining us. We're honored to have you. Thank you for the invitation. These are certainly tough times for everybody, but I'm glad for the invitation to speak. Obviously, COVID-19 is a major problem that's going to be with us in a serious way for some time. We're seeing polarized responses right now in red and blue states, but do you think at some point there's going to be more of a national consensus and and an effort to address this in a nonpartisan way? This is a, a great concern of mine as this national crisis has unfolded. I've been very concerned about this idea that it's got to be somebody else's fault. That's unfortunately very different than what it used to be in this country, where crises would bring people together. It would be the one unifying factor that was out there where where people would put politics aside. It is exactly the opposite now. It only exacerbates the problem of partisanship. It highlights the divide of the country. And you are seeing it with COVID-19. You're seeing, unfortunately, people on both sides do things and say things that are designed specifically to show that the other side is politically responsible for the crisis that you see, either for the health consequences of COVID-19 or the economic consequences or the inconvenience of having to be at home. So your book, Dead Center, uh, is holding up quite well, unfortunately. Uh, But if you could add or revise a section of that today, a couple of years later, what topic would that be and and why would you add that in? My book's all about political polarization, as you know. And I offer a few things. I have social science research into the way partisans think, how they react in different circumstances. For example, if you present them information that conclusively proves their point of view is wrong, will they accept it? No, they won't. How do you deal with people that just don't listen to fact? Uh, if, If you show them evidence, often they'll dig in and get more entrenched in their opinion. And the unfortunate part is the problem has only gotten worse. You almost never see the aggregate voting record of a member cross over into the territory of the other side. And it used to be 30 years ago, about a third or more of both Republicans and Democrats would frequently cross over and vote with the other party. And and there was this very strong centrist mix in both the House and the Senate. Today, that's gone. It's not there at all. So earlier this year, after Bernie Sanders won the New Hampshire presidential primary, there seemed to be a bit of a bottom-up movement from lower-level candidates who were concerned having Bernie on the ticket would jeopardize their chances uh, in swing states like Pennsylvania. Could you analyze for us what happened in that pivotal period? That's an instructive example. The reason that Senator Sanders had the support that he did is because of the dynamic that I described, because people in primaries who show up overwhelmingly tilt towards the extreme of the party base. And at the moment it appeared that he was about to sew up the nomination, people took a step back and said their only concern is getting President Trump out of office. Because in the general election, it is the folks 
in the middle who are going to determine the outcome, the folks who are the voters that are willing to cross the aisle and vote for the other party if they like that candidate more. And if somebody like Senator Sanders is going to be on top of the ticket, that is going to turn off a huge number of folks who might otherwise have voted for a Democratic candidate because they're going to fear that that Democratic majority is going to carry out the policy agenda of Senator Sanders. It seems like there are two main factions among Democrats in Congress, progressives and moderates, but maybe it's more complicated than that. Can you break down the current factions of Democrats in Congress or running for Congress and who has the upper hand? Well, who has the upper hand is the partisans on both sides, the Republicans and the Democrats. But on the Democratic side, there are still a handful of members who come from districts, like I described, where the swing vote in the middle is very important. And the groups within Congress who are representative of those types of members, there's a group called the New Democrat Coalition, which is a pro-business Democratic group. You also have the Blue Dog Coalition, and the Blue Dogs are not about issues at all. They're about what I'm talking about, about working with the other side and, and having the two parties negotiate and compromise and come to agreement on issues. During your time in Congress, uh, the moderate Republican Senator Arlen Specter, also from Pennsylvania, changed parties from Republican to Democrat. I was wondering if at any point during your time in Congress, were there overtures from Republicans for you to switch to their side? I was somebody who was ranked by the National Journal to be the most centrist voting candidate or congressman in the entire House. If you rank the members from one to 435, with one being the most liberal and 435 being the most conservative, National Journal ranked my voting record to be 218, which is exactly in the middle, in the dead center of the House. So yeah, at that point, my own party started to turn against me. They started to have concerns that I wasn't able to support or willing to support the party agenda on every issue because my district just wasn't supportive of those issues. And when the other side, in this case, the Republicans, see that you're facing pressure from your own party, they're going to have a conversation with you. So yeah, I was approached. I had numerous people ask me to consider, but that wasn't something I was interested in. I, I, I would not have done it. So at the same time, polarization has increased in the country. There's also been this increase in registered independents or unaffiliated voters. How do we explain that contradiction? It's all about the way we handle elections in this country. One of the questions I get asked most often when I speak around the country about these issues is, why is there so much partisanship in Washington? We don't see that in our neighborhood. Why is that what we're getting in Congress? Well, the answer is because we're electing partisans. We have a system that is designed to elect and protect people on the political extreme, on the fringe. And that is because of what happens in our primary process. So you are seeing great disgust in the country with the polarization that we see all around us. Some people have chosen to disengage from the political process and just not vote and not participate. That is clearly not the right answer. But the other problem is people have become disgusted and they've left the Democratic and the Republican Party and they've become independents. And now they've disenfranchised themselves in many states. They can't participate in primary elections. 
You're listening to The Purple Principle, and our featured guest today, former three-term U.S. Congressman Jason Altmaier, author of Dead Center, and the most centrist member of the U.S. House during his tenure. Emily, that's a huge point about collateral damage from independent voters locking themselves out of primaries. Do we have any numbers on that? Uh, yes, there are some big numbers mentioned out there, including 23 million from Jacqueline Salit, who was a guest in our third episode, and also president of independentvoting.org. And what about our own estimate? Okay, well, that is tricky because at first we have to start by looking at all 50 states and then at their primary systems. And then at the growth of independent voters in those states with closed and semi-closed primaries. And that's where independents are excluded from voting unless they register for a party. And sometimes you have to do that months in advance before candidates are even running. But roughly speaking? Roughly speaking, at least 9 million. And that's according to our really conservative estimates, which are based on states with closed primaries. Still, 9 million, big number. If you break that number down for the most competitive primaries in swing states like Pennsylvania or Florida, seems like that's way beyond the margins that divide these races. Exactly. A lot of these House primaries really do come down to just a few thousand votes with so many independents on the sidelines. Which is Jason Altmaier's point, that when independents check out from the primaries, the results will be more polarized. And we're going to hear more on that subject in the next part of the interview with former Congressman Jason Altmaier, author of Dead Center, How Political Polarization Divided America. So we've been talking about polarization, but it's a little mysterious as space opens in the center. Why aren't there more successful runs from centrist independent candidates? We have evolved as a country into a two-party system. It is not written into the Constitution, contrary to what people think. It is not something that was in place at the time we founded the country, the founding fathers did not envision the two-party system. They feared it. Washington famously spoke about it in his farewell address. John Adams wrote about the dangers of a two-party factional system. And uh, it's just over 230 plus years, the inertia of that two-party system has made it nearly impossible for an independent candidate to win at the federal level. And if you have an R or a D by your name, that gives some indication to the voters of where you're going to be on on issues. If you're an independent, you don't necessarily have that. And more importantly, you don't have the institutional support of the activists and the party committees who do the hard work of raising money and knocking on doors. Independents just don't have that base of support. Very, very difficult. So in your book, Dead Center, you cover the influence of polarized media, and we certainly see media voices out there with a strong influence on Republican Party policy and voting. How do you see it on the Democratic side? Well, Fox News is unique in that they have perfected the model. Uh, MSNBC, I think, has caught up or nearly caught up, and CNN is close. If you hate President Trump, you have a friend in MSNBC or CNN. If you're on the other side and you want to hear why President Trump is great for America and the Democrats are unfairly targeting him and, you know, on down the line, then Fox is going to be your network. And the problem is always going to be you're not exposed to other points of view. 
And that's kind of like that joint town hall example that we started this conversation with. If you have a town hall meeting where you only hear from one side, you're going to think that that's the majority opinion in your district. And you're going to go to Washington. And when you hear somebody express a view differing than that, you're going to think they're crazy. That's unfortunately what we have. And yes, it does apply to Democrats too. So other than, I suppose, terminating one's Facebook account and smashing a TV, what suggestions would you have for moderates or independents for media consumption? Awareness is the first of those, you know, being aware that people do generally have their own political spin. I get asked almost every time I speak, that very question is, what are the news sources that I can count on to be unbiased? And what you find is people generally view a biased presentation to be one with which they disagree. I find that certainly opinion columns are are what they're called. They're people offering opinions. But in most cases, the journalists, the people who are who are following candidates and writing about campaigns, they generally present issues in a two-sided way, in a generally nonpartisan way. So we're still in the primary season now. What is your hope for the 2020 Democratic primaries? Do you see centers who have a good chance of getting into the House? Yeah, in these swing districts, Certainly, you know, for me, it's not about a Democrat. It doesn't have to be a Democrat or Republican. I just want pragmatic, thoughtful members, people who are willing to work with both sides and who are willing to consider other points of views and who are in districts where compromise is not considered a dirty word. And hopping over to the Republican side, if, for example, and it's very hypothetical, the Democrats were to win the Senate, hold the House, take the White House, would you expect that to have a moderating influence on the Republican Party? Uh, I, I don't suspect that President Trump is going to be very highly rated throughout history. I don't suspect that those who have supported uh, his agenda are going to be thanked in the history books for that view. And I think the Republican Party has done some damage to itself in the way that it has approached the Trump presidency. And that is in large part because of the primary circumstance that you and I talked about. So our last question, which we ask all our guests, is to show a bit of purple, since our audience is primarily independents. As a former Democratic congressman, could you share with us a major Republican candidate that you either did or could have voted for? My first presidential election that I voted was 1988. I voted for President Bush, that time, you know, Vice President Bush. I thought he was exactly the type of candidate that you and I are talking about. And historically, he has only grown in stature because of the polarization that you see. I have definitely voted for both parties. I I am not one of these folks who goes in and just goes right down the line, pushing the button for my own party. I look at somebody in Congress like Congressman Tom Reed from uh, the Corning, New York area, who's leading a group called the Problem Solvers Caucus as a Republican, and that's a group of Republicans and Democrats in the House that come together and discuss issues and try to vote as a block. That's very much needed in the House. That was our special guest, former Congressman Jason Altmaier, one of the most centrist members of the U.S. House during his three terms, and author of the book Dead Center by Sunbury Press. So, Emily... 
You did some research on Altmaier's congressional record. What'd you come up with? He voted against the ACA, as in Obamacare, on the grounds that it didn't provide enough cost control. And on the other hand, here's a clip from the House floor where he's criticizing George W. Bush's veto of health insurance for low-income children. Mr. Speaker, while some in the minority party and in the presidential race are trying to recast themselves as agents of change, nothing could be further from the truth. In the past eight years, the number of Americans living without health insurance has increased by more than seven million. Today, nearly one in nine children lack health insurance. We tried not once but twice to ensure that 10 million children had access to health care through the Children's Health Insurance Program, which serves families that are working hard and playing by the rules but can't afford health care for their kids. And although we were able to pass the bill through Congress, President Bush vetoed it twice. That's interesting. Any major bill sponsorships that actually passed? Yes. And... Well, to start, there was a sponsorship of the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which allowed for military members to serve as openly gay. And it looks like he lined up bipartisan support for that bill with six Democratic and two Republican co-sponsors. And how about highlights from House floor speeches? Yes, we found this bipartisan appeal from the floor in 2013, as Congress was trying to break the budget stalemate and avoid financial defaults, a.k.a. financial suicide. Last night, the Senate did what great deliberative bodies are supposed to do. They worked together, they compromised, they accommodated other points of view, and they got the job done. My colleagues, let's join together today. Let's show the American people that this Congress is not broken, that we are not so dysfunctional, that we can't at minimum work together, come to agreement, compromise. So it does seem he was this centrist independent in his House positions, as well as back in his district holding those town halls. Let's hear Jason Altmaier's own description of how those town halls came off. We invited all of our constituents jointly, and we got a great mix. We had a wonderful discussion, no theatrics, all the theatrics that you see at these partisan town hall meetings with the gotcha questions and people yelling and screaming. None of that happened. Completely civil discussion about the issues, and we had a great experience. Seems like a great idea, which makes me wonder, why did the town hall stop? That is where it gets interesting. Again, former Congressman Jason Altmaier. And then I got a call from my leadership in the House saying, what are you doing? Why are you having these town hall meetings? Because the congressman I was doing these with, his name was Tim Murphy, and they said, well, Tim is on our target list for the upcoming election. And by you working with him and showing him to be bipartisan, that's going to contradict the message because the message we're going to be showing in the advertising is going to be all about how he's extreme and he's too conservative for the district. Aha. So Altmaier's own party leadership cracked down on him. Yes. But wait, there's more. And so I talked to Tim about that when I saw him on the floor of the House the next time. And he said, oh, that's funny that you say that because my leadership said exactly the same thing about you. They're planning on tying you in with Nancy Pelosi and saying you're too liberal for the district. So both of our leadership tried to get us to stop holding these town hall meetings because they felt like we were helping the other side. It wasn't about communicating with constituents and conveying issues and, and learning from the experience 
it was that we might actually be helping politically somebody on the other side. And that was just unacceptable. It's not, that's not the way it should be in Congress. That was our special guest, former three-term Democratic Congressman Jason Altmaier, on the bipartisan town halls held with former Republican Congressman Tim Murphy. These were shut down by the leadership of both parties. So, Emily, what's happened in those districts since that time? Like in so many places, there was a bit of gerrymandering followed by a few court cases. But long story short, Jason Altmaier was defeated in the 2012 Democratic primary and Congressman Murphy resigned after scandal in 2017. So no more town halls. Not like theirs. And things have gotten even more polarized in the House since 2012 in terms of floor votes. There's more of that info on our website at purpleprinciple.com and on the great repository of congressional voting data, UCLA's votefew.com database. We hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something about the perils of partisanship from former Congressman Jason Altmaier. We have some questions here on the Purple Principle. How'd we get so partisan? How might we get less partisan? And can independent-minded Americans help bridge the divide? Next time, join us for a slightly different take on partisanship from stand-up comedian Mike Kaplan. Interesting question. Well, I mean, first, I think I I need to disclaim this by saying I have a very high level of education, so I don't think I know what I'm talking about. Um, (laughs) Based on the research that I just learned and trust blindly. This is Robert Pease for the Purple Principle team, Emily Crisetti, staff reporter, Kevin A. Klein, audio engineer, Janice Murphy, marketing, Emily Holloway, research and fact-checking. Our awesome theme music and scoring is by Ryan Adair Rooney.